Ethel's Travel Tales, Accounts from an Addicted Travel Photographer. Ancient Sites, Egypt, a series of visits spanning 32 years. One, April 1975, Sinai Peninsula. On Monday, I went off on a four-day Sinai tour. It was the type of tour much more for, let's say, my parents than for me. But I couldn't get exactly what I wanted in the last minute. The trip was also rather expensive, but I could afford it considering the money I've been saving staying with relatives during my travels. The Sinai is beautiful. The majority of it is mountainous with Mount Sinai at over 7,500 feet. The oases on the Gulf of Eilat are paradises. I've fallen utterly in love with a place called Dahab. It's very rough, undeveloped, and unpopulated by either humans or even plants. Just Bedouins and dromedaries. It's truly what one imagines when one hears of the Middle East. Eilat, by the way, is spectacularly gorgeous, but we didn't stay. When I come back, I want to spend more time there. Sharm el Cheikh is a very nice swimming resort type place, but I like Dahab, Dahab better. Incidentally, the word wadi comes up often, and here's a brief explanation. It's a huge, dry riverbed, often a mile wide, which is the desert equivalent of a glacial flow. It's from these stretches that they make all the inland roads. It's also from where the floods come, creating even wider areas. We went to Santa Catarina's monastery built in the 3rd or 4th century AD and climbed Mount Moses, or Sinai, as some scholars believe. Then we continued to Abu Rodeus, which is good for nothing but oil. It's a pit, pretty much. Mitla Pass is amazing. You really get a good idea of what it's like to have a war. Lots of uncleared minefields and remains of Egyptian artillery. By the number of military bases and how they're being equipped, I'm almost sure there's going to be another war soon. It's scary, but unfortunately true. 2. February 1983. Egypt. In my final year of photography college, during which I studied on campus for one day a week and worked on a publishing company for the rest of the time, a four-day-a-week college invited me on a 14-day trip to Egypt. Other than on the quick jaunt through the Sinai in 1975, as mentioned above, when it briefly belonged to Israel, I had never been. What an opportunity, I thought, having heard about ancient Egypt since I was in primary school. Liz's connection was that an old friend, now an Egyptologist, would be leading the tour. I duly excused myself from the single day of class, no big deal, and joined the group. I remember quite a bit about the journey, despite my not having kept notes in those days, and I recall that I brought along my 5x4 plate camera. I was very influenced by the Victorian artist David Roberts and felt my formal style suited his. Imagine my running around these several thousand-year-old sites with my old-fashioned apparatus, complete with tripod. The transparencies remain, reminding me of the first such historic location I was to photograph in such a method. 
Just outside of Cairo, our first stop is where the only one of the seven wonders of the ancient world still exists, the Great Pyramids of Giza. I wanted to get the best photograph I could. Grabbing a friend, we managed to hire a young local who came with us on horses so that our viewpoint would be from a distance. We dissuaded the insistent camel hawkers by saying we didn't have enough time and needed faster speeds of the equines. Off we galloped till I cried halt at my perfect view. Then I got off my steed, my young assistant also, set up the tripod that he'd been carrying for me and snapped the view. My accompanying friend also took a shot of me as the photographer with one of the most iconic views of the planet in the background. Once back at the site, we were allowed to enter the Great Pyramid of Khufu. Walking into the deep tunnel, knowing we were under tons of masonry, we wandered further and further until we came to a small, dark room. Without the guide, we would have been lost forever. Newer skeletons replacing the pharaohs that had once been taken away centuries before. I wondered at the ingenuity of the constructors and even more at the successful grave pillagers. It was with a certain amount of relief that we were led back into the brilliant desert sunshine. Back in Cairo, there was a complete contrast Taking a break from the rest of the group, I took a walk through the busy streets, notable for their lack of English anywhere. My sense of direction stood me in reasonable stead in terms of navigation, but not necessarily in good sense. I found myself in a backstreet neighborhood, wandering in my normal Western garb when I felt something hit me on the arm. Soon there were more knocks, and I realized I slowly I was being stoned. Get out of there quick, I thought. There are some areas where tourists are not welcome. However, our expert guide took us to some other wonderful places. Circling around the ancient capital of Luxor, we explored the best of the nearby sites, guided by a woman who not only knew her stuff, but could read hieroglyphics better than the local man that the tour organization provided. There I was, following our group, laden down with my plate camera wherever we went. Queen Hatshepsut, the woman who became pharaoh, had her temple at Deir al-Bahari. The beautiful temple of Hathor, with its cow-eyed goddess and lovely sculptured heads, was situated at Dendera, the Ramesseum belonging to the eponymous pharaoh. In Luxor itself, the once supreme pharaonic city, we visited and documented the local Luxor temple and the arguably terrifying Karnak. At the latter, we were told, not to worry if the enormous columns were too big to appreciate. They were designed for the gods, not humans. A relief allegedly of Cleopatra looked down on us from those carved walls as we passed. Of course, the highlight was the Valley of the Kings. Not surprisingly, many tourists lined up to enter as the tombs. These are not only uniquely beautiful, but also a definite must when visiting the country. Just outside the entrance, we obvious tourists were bombarded by vendors offering all sorts of goods. We weren't left alone until we passed through the gates, as those salespeople couldn't afford the entrance fee. There we were, standing in a sandy desert. It looked like there was nothing to see as far as the horizon behind those brown valley walls. We were led to a hole in the ground with stairs leading down. We duly descended into a delightful depiction of an ancient world. Here was where one of the pharaohs was buried. No doubt he had been robbed of all his possessions centuries before, but the wall paintings remained. 
their colors still vibrated, enhanced by the series of strategically aligned mirrors that lit up the cave. On emerging, we were back in the undistinguished plane again and led to another hole. Again, the experience was recreated, although a different pharaoh of another era had a completely different style of artwork, but no less wonderful. The crowds limited our number of tombs we could visit. There were many more to see, probably even more, many not yet excavated. A little side note. When wandering through these ruins, often on my own, but clearly encumbered by my photographic identity, I carried around small change for bribery. Locally called bakshish, this label was also how I named the pocket in which my coins were kept. Sometimes, however, the opportunistic local guide wanted a little more. At one of the tombs where I wanted to photograph, I arranged to go down. The price I had to pay was being touched by the guardian. Fortunately, I had the good sense to go with someone else as well as taking the picture very quickly. Not the nicest of experiences. Piling into our bus and leaving Luxor, we drove down to Edfu. In its time, there were areas that the pious could enter, but beyond, the inner sanctums were only for the priests. Of course, in the modern era, the tourists ambled into anywhere still standing, but I had the strangest feeling when deep inside. I sensed that these places were not for me. They were still sacred, areas meant only for those of the highest religious order. I left feeling slightly spooked. Kamambo, further south and paradoxically in the upper Nile, as the river flows north, up is down and vice versa, was another impressive location, notable for its beautiful carvings. We continued south, or into the upper Nile, to the Aswan Dam, allegedly built to regulate the flow of the Nile River. In so doing, it created Lake Nasser. Apparently, such a large body of water develops a microclimate, and the locals say they now saw clouds brewing up in the winter where they never had before. Another byproduct of the creation of the reservoir was the need to remove some of the ancient monuments lying in the wake of the rising water. Among them was the Temple of Isis located on the island of Philae. This location was not the original. Due to the construction of the dam and the resultant flooding, the remains were moved here and accurately rebuilt for preservation. We sailed there via an Egyptian dhow, finally granting us an opportunity to see the Nile from a water perspective. This temple, built in a Hellenistic style during the time of the Greco-Ptolemies, was chronologically much later than many of the temples we had seen previously, but striking nevertheless. Surrounded by water, it became even more beautiful, not to mention cooler, as even in February, the air was pretty warm. I propped up the plate camera and shot away. Later, back in London, as a reaffirmation of the effort, the design teacher of my course, where I was still studying, was so impressed that she bought a print of my feline photo. For those intrepid members of our group who are willing to cough up the airfare, a visit to Abu Simbel, right on the border with Sudan, was being offered. I wasn't going to miss this one and join the flight. I remember a 1968 Life magazine feature from my childhood in which the cutting of the temple into reconstructable blocks was shown, together with the reassembly in the new location. Here was the real thing. From the front, the place looked authentic, but in the back, you could see the protective shell built around it. Although it was possible to walk into the interior that no doubt looked exactly as it had once done, 
Now, apparently, the sun shines into it on a different date than the original. One could argue, however, that over the thousands of years, the date would have shifted anyway. When we returned to Aswan, we found our way to the accommodation, the old Cataract Hotel. It looked familiar. Not only the location where Agatha Christie stayed, it was also where Death on the Nile had been filmed five years before. We eyed each of our fellow tour group, wondering if there was something sinister brewing, especially now that we had come to the end of our journey. Soon, however, we were overwhelmed by the easy charm and forgot about anything evil. And that was it. It would be several years before my return to Egypt, with a, not with a plate camera this time, but rather with a more portable 35mm version and no longer such a relatively novice traveler. 3. November 1994 I was on an assignment for Swan Hellenic Cruises, shooting the locations rather than the passengers for their brochures. Both fortunate and unfortunate in that the social life was wonderful, but the opportunity for writing notes minimal. I have very little record, written record of that trip. However, I have noted some of the more important sites that we saw, and of course, I have the photos. Luxor. The cruise ship sailed along the Red Sea, down from Aqaba, landing at the Egyptian port of Safaga. From here, we took a prearranged coach, a specialty of Swan's precise and efficient organization, and arrived in Luxor. As before, the attractions remained the same. After all, after several thousand years since construction and tourists having visited since Greek times, why should anything change? On our itinerary, we saw the Luxor tombs and took a quick visit to the less prestigious but nearly as interesting Valley of the Nobles. It was uh, something to, see, to note that here was a populated village. The locals, no doubt making a living from selling copies of some of the ancient artifacts, or even discreetly and illegally selling alleged originals for very high prices. The next day, we visited more tombs, both in Luxor and the Valley of the Kings. And a few days later, we were in Cairo. The weather here is cool and cloudy. We drove from our landing point at Suez this morning, visited the pyramids, although the overcast skies prevented any great shots. The solar boat of the Cheops Museum was awesome, and a splash of light rendered my Sphinx pictures usable. We saw the Egyptian Museum with the wonderful Tutankhamun mask, as badly presented as ever, in dust in old-fashioned cases. I'm now hiding out at the Hilton before the Saint Lumiere show, which precedes the belly dancing. 4. November 1996. To Luxor. Another swan assignment, and again in November. This time I was invited on the maiden journey of their wonderful new low-passenger number super luxury ship, like a country house on the sea, allegedly. Minerva, shooting some of their new destinations. Beginning in Aqaba again, we sailed down the Red Sea, stopping at Safaga once more to enable us to visit the ruins at Luxor, normally a three-hour drive away. However, due to the recent political disturbances, we were not only accompanied by a police escort, but constantly stopped en route. To Luxor. Now we're sitting in a huge queue, apparently on the way to Luxor. This trip will be the shortest time spent in the center of ancient Egypt, and it's taking the longest to get there. People here are in remarkably good spirits, considering we should have been there by now instead of having barely started. 
There are security problems as well as the roads having been washed away. At least it gives me time to catch up on the notes. Truth be told, I'm not that bothered. I've not been given much to do, so I'm along just for the ride. But eight hours in a bus? Another checkpoint, 20 kilometers from Chena. At least things should start getting interesting now. The next day in Luxor, where we finally made it. Thinking back to yesterday at Luxor makes me feel even more as if I've dreamed it. We did finally arrive and dashed off to the building site of Karnak. I seemed to be more enchanted with the hypostyle hall than usual, intrigued by the entwined arches and columns. We ate quickly, then spent the afternoon at the Valley of the Kings. There were few people there, and at the Egyptologist's recommendation, dashed off to two of the three uppermost tombs that I hadn't seen before. Charming, exciting, empty. A few minutes of extra time, plus a spare one-third of someone else's ticket, granted me a visit to the tomb of Merem-Hotep and charming series of magnificent painted chambers. Then we headed into the desert night to return to the ship, driving across the not-quite-empty sands under the gaze of a full moon rising. Magic. I actually felt quite at ease, happy with the world. Most of the passengers felt the same way. 5. October 2007 There was a gap of just about 11 years before I had another opportunity to visit the country, as brief as it turned out to be. At the tail end of research for my book, North Africa, the Roman Coast, the very upmarket Smithsonian Institution cruise that visited Tunisia and Libya ended up in Egypt. For all my previous visits to Egypt, from Port Said to Abu Simbel, I had missed the first city of the country, Alexandria. Now is my chance. Alexandria. Alexandria sits on the shores of the Mediterranean and offers a lovely aspect, particularly when sailing into port. Other than the 15th century fort of Chaitby, sitting picturesquely by the water and allegedly where the famous lighthouse once stood, there are not many ancient sites to show off the visitor. Although vestiges of a few ancient temples exist, apparently the best evidence of the once great Hellenic period city lies underwater. We didn't have our diving gear with us, so we missed that opportunity. The beautiful modern Bibliothèque Alexandrina reincarnated the ancient memory of the classic world's famous library of Alexandria. No ruins of the original were visible, although the institution did have some superb items on display dating from Egypt's history as well as digital recreations of ancient texts. Overall, it was a very pleasant city with a wonderful sweep of the bay as well as breezes that didn't exist in the deserts of the country. However, there wasn't much else to peruse for the amateur ancient Egyptologist. Still, I enjoyed seeing it, and as my area of research were the countries further west, which I had already done, I could visit Alexandria as a tourist rather than as a scholar to Cairo. Leaving our ship behind on the Mediterranean, a waiting bus took us to Cairo. Although the modern and semi-modern city was fascinating, the emphasis of this tour was the ancient world. Off we went to the outskirts of Giza, once again, for me, to see the pyramids and their environs. Time was relatively short, so there was little opportunity for me to do anything other than glance at the monuments and gaze at the Sphinx with the rest of the crowd. 
a wander through the Giza Solar Boat Museum featuring the bit of Khufu's four and a half thousand year old boat that had now been reassembled for the amazement of the tourists had also been included. Well, that was pretty much it. I watched my fellow shipmates fly back to America on their charter and allowed myself an extra day before I returned to the United Kingdom. I was able to visit a few sites of medieval and Coptic Cairo, but I didn't really have time to explore anywhere. I too had to re-enter the modern world. Egypt may not be the most beautiful in terms of landscape of countries, but it must be one of the most interesting. It doesn't have my heart, but it does have my soul. I'd be happy to return again to see how the ancient sites have or haven't changed, but for political, social, and health reasons, the rest of the world, and this world too, is a different place. Maybe when things settle down, I'll be able to make a sixth visit.